This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Derek Chauvin, the police officer convicted of murdering George Floyd, is appealing his conviction. This as developments rise in alleged police misconduct against Chicagoans, including Daniel Prude. Footage showed Rochester police placing a hood over Prude's head and holding him down before he suffocated to death last year. And last week, the Rochester PD cited just one officer for excessive force. And back home, new video has emerged of a recent confrontation between a woman walking her dog at North Avenue Beach and a Chicago officer. So almost a year and a half after George Floyd's death, where are we when it comes to police reform in Chicago and beyond? With us now are Echo Yanka, a law professor from Cardoza Law School in New York. Welcome back, Professor Yanka. Thanks for having me back. And with Echo is Chicago-based NPR correspondent Cheryl Corley. She covers criminal justice. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. So let's start with convicted former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Cheryl, what's the latest on his case? Well, right now, Derek Chauvin is serving a sentence, uh, 22 and a half years. He's in prison for the murder of George Floyd. He's at a um, correctional facility in a suburb of Minneapolis, and he's in segregation, living apart from the uh, general population of the prison, which is often the case for former police officers who are in prison. They are segregated from the uh, general population. Professor, is there a real possibility here that Chauvin's sentence could be overturned? Appeals are difficult. Remember, now you're no longer a free citizen with the assumption or the presumption of innocence. It's quite the opposite. You're presumed guilty. So you're trying to reverse the legal machinery. That said, I think he's got a couple really important arguments. The first is the first police officer to be convicted in Minnesota ever was uh, Mohammed Noir, who was convicted for shooting an Australian woman when he was called to help her. The Minnesota Supreme Court recently reversed his third-degree murder charge, and they reversed in a way that applies to Derek Chauvin's case as well. So one of Derek Chauvin's murder charges, if the Minnesota court reasons the same way, or frankly, if the prosecutors agree, will probably be thrown out. So on that, he's got a good argument. And then his most powerful other arguments are going to be about the publicity and the fairness of his trial, given that the whole country and certainly every Minnesotan was watching the facts of this before it went to trial. 
while Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd. I want to be clear, that represents a rare rebuke of police violence. Right, Professor? It was only the second, and that's why I mentioned Mohammed Noor. Mohammed Noor's conviction was the first of a police officer in the history of the state, Derek Chauvin being only the second. And so it's really remarkable now that the most serious charge against Noir has been struck down, that that was one of the same charges that applied to Derek Chauvin. So, in fact, the only murder charge left for Derek Chauvin is really going to be a felony murder charge, which is a legal way of saying that he assaulted somebody, committed a felony, and then somebody died during that felony. So the reasoning from this adjacent police case has knocked out one of the legs under which Chauvin was convicted. Why is it so hard to hold officers accountable for their actions? I think there are a ton of reasons, but the most important of which is that we want to believe officers. I mean, when you walk in trial, you're supposed to weigh everybody's testimony as just a person who could be telling the truth and could be lying. But you know as well as I do, if you're at a dinner party and you suggest that a police officer is no more believable than anybody else, people think you're attacking policing or there's this view that you're anti-cop. And so there's this deep social commitment to believing officers and defending officers in ways that we don't do to anybody else. Officers are given this huge plate of rights. They're given time before they're interviewed. They're allowed to talk to their lawyers beforehand. They're allowed to craft the story. I mean, these are rights that if I suggested should be given to the ordinary citizen, and perhaps they should, people would think you were soft on crime. But with police officers, we give them all sorts of special treatment even before they go to trial. Cheryl, since Floyd's murder, have we seen other cities and states successfully enact police reform laws? Yeah, we've seen lots of change across the country and lots of effort, some of it not always successful. But I think some of the uh, boldest uh, reform experiments underway in the wake of all the protests over police violence and and racism following George Floyd's murder are some uh, pilot projects in Denver and San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, and, and Oakland, where they're kind of confronting these hard questions about what role of any police should actually play in responding uh, to calls, especially when people have this kind of nonviolent mental health or, or drug or alcohol or, or homeless crises. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is them kind of having mental health experts come in for events as a response as opposed to police. And so Oakland is trying a pilot program like that as well. You also uh, have seen a lot of folks talk about and implement civilian oversight. In November, uh, in Minneapolis, voters are going to decide whether to end the city's police department and replace it with uh, a Department of Public Safety where you have police officers and licensed professionals and experts kind of shift from this law enforcement model to more social services and that sort of thing. And I think I should also point out that that even here in Chicago, the city council has approved a plan that gives civilians kind of direct oversight of the city's police department, something that's been long in the making, something (laughs) that might take many months to work out as well. But that is something that has been approved. Professor Yanka, as Cheryl mentioned, civilian oversight, we're we're seeing Instances of that take place across the country here in Chicago as well, and overall diverting money from police departments to other services. Do these reforms go far enough? 
I don't think so. I mean, I think we have to be watchful as active citizens on what we mean by diverting money. Often what happens, certainly in New York, is just an accounting move, right? So the exact same policing, if you just shift from one budget to another, you can, as a political actor, stand up and say, look, I moved $5 million or $50 million from the police, and you haven't changed anything on the ground. And civilian oversight has a kind of uneven record, including often the police choosing the civilians who sit on the oversight board, choosing people who they don't think will really challenge them. I've always thought the most important thing is to really think hard about who we choose to be police officers. I mean, we see in case after case, the kinds of videos that scar us, we think, why was that person made a police officer in the first place? This is not the first time they've had these incidents. This is something that should have been caught, not in training, but in recruiting. Cheryl, I want to move on. There are some developments in the death of Daniel Prude as well. Can you remind us who Daniel Prude was and what happened to him in March of last year? Yeah, he was a Chicagoan. He was 41, and he was visiting his brother in uh, Rochester, New York. And officers answered some 911 calls from that brother because Daniel Prude had been behaving kind of erratically. Uh, He ran from his brother's home, just had on... uh, nightshirt, I think, and and didn't have any shoes. And uh, his brother was worried for his safety. The responding officers found Daniel Prude naked, claiming uh, that he had the coronavirus. They confronted him. They restrained him. And they used what's a controversial kind of policing practice where they placed a hood over his head after he began to spit at him. And several of those officers, uh, including Officer Mark Vaughn, kind of pinned Daniel Prudy to the ground for about two minutes, according uh, to some police records, and he lost consciousness, had to be resuscitated, and uh, he died a week later after being placed on life support. So what's, what's uh, the latest on the investigation then into his death? Yeah, there have been departmental charges. They're the first to be filed against uh, any of the seven officers who were suspended in the case. And that's kind of where we stand now. Officer Vaughn, one of those seven officers, was suspended, although the attorney general had found that there was enough evidence to present the case for criminal charges. A grand jury kind of declined to indict any of those officers. So that's where it stands now. We're waiting to hear what will happen with departmental charges against Mark Vaughn. And he's the only one so far to face any kind of disciplinary charges and the family has filed a lawsuit saying that the officers violated their relatives' constitutional rights. Wrongful death lawsuit. The family, they say it is long past time for the city of Rochester to seek accountability from the officers who killed Daniel. As everyone now knows, the city's initial reaction to the police killing of Daniel Prude was to cover it up. Professor, were you surprised that disciplinary charges were only brought against one of the officers involved here? Not particularly. I mean... um As you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, it's remarkably hard to hold officers criminally accountable for behavior. In this case, you have somebody who's going through a mental health crisis. You have somebody who is acting deeply erratically, and the officers are going to say, as we knew they were going to say, and was their defense, that they were following department policy, that they were permitted to do all these things. You know, one of the things that's difficult about policing is that the police revert to what they're allowed to do 
but our outrage typically surrounds why did they do this? Was this the reasonable thing to do? Was this the right thing to do? And those are often just different conversations. Cheryl, let's Can ahead. I just jump in and just add that that's why I think that you're saying even here in Chicago, the training regulations change where they're saying that officers now have a duty to intervene because uh, in a lot of these instances, you'll have really conflicting reports and conflicting testimony about the procedures that people are supposed to follow and what's permissible as far as police practices is designed. Now we have these new regulations or new practices supposed to be uh, put into place where they're calling for officers, other officers, to intervene. I want to also talk, Cheryl, about the, the body camera footage that was released Thursday of that struggle between a black woman walking her dog and a Chicago police officer. What do we hear in this new video? Well, you know, one of the things that stood out for me was the video that was apparently taken by another bystander, maybe from a city uh, sanitation truck or something like that. You, you hear a person say, are you serious? Um, but that footage shows, uh, you know, a police officer grabbing uh, Nikita Brown, who was out walking her dog in a park uh, near North Avenue Beach. And uh, we see this video of the struggle between her and the police officer as he is telling her to leave the park. Mm -hmm. You know, Brown is asking the officer to please respect her space, that he doesn't have a mask on. (laughs) And he says, uh, respect your space. I'm outside. Uh, I don't have to wear one. Yeah, I'm about to put handcuffs on you. Uh, I don't need a mask. I'm outside. And the exit is that way. You need to exit. She was uh, incredulous (laughs) and scared as she uh, made a 911 call after the incident to say that, you know, she'd been kind of handled wrongfully, she thought, by this officer. At one point, Professor, the the woman tells the officer, she says, I feel threatened. And he replies, good. Is that how a lot of people in the minority community feel? Like that instead of police showing up and and symbolizing this safety and, and order, they feel threatened? I think you're absolutely right. And and more than that, what the video shows, just back to the conversation we're having, it shows, one, the difference between what police are permitted to do and what we think people ought to do. If you and I treated somebody, even if we had the right to move them off, you know, parkland, if we treated them like that, people would just say, as Cheryl's saying, are you serious? What are you doing? Like, this is not necessary. The example that really leapt to my mind was the Sandra Bland video. If everybody recalls Sandra Bland being pulled over by an officer, she ended up later hanging herself, at least that's the report, in a prison. And the officer keeps yelling at her to put out her cigarette. And he eventually, I mean, quite quickly escalates and says, if you don't put out your cigarette, I'm going to light you up with a taser. And what we saw in those moments, and I think here again with Nikita Brown is, this is not an officer asking for respect. Right. This is not an officer even enforcing the law. That could have been done with much less anger and force. These are people who are demanding dominance, right? When you say, Sandra Bland, you have to put out your cigarette in your car. I mean, is it rude to smoke in someone's face? Sure, but you don't get to dominate somebody that way. You, you, you have to understand they have their own rights. And it's the same thing here with Nikita Brown. Maybe she should leave, but the officer wants not respect but obsequiousness and that's too often the case especially along racial lines this black woman should just do what i say 
I think a lot of people thought that the George Floyd protests last year were this huge historical moment, which they were. Folks thought it was a turning point, though, for this country when it comes to policing. It's been more than a year, Cheryl. I wonder what you're hearing from the ground, like from Black Lives Matter activists or community advocates. Do do they feel like significant police reform has actually occurred or that there's been a start? Yeah, I think it really depends on who you talk to. I mean, some people might think there's been a start when they look at some of the reforms that have been made. But I think a lot of people are still, I don't know if disenfranchised is the right word, but still uh, think that a lot needs to be done. Um, I think a lot of people have been pinning their hopes on the uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which passed in the House in Congress, but not so in the Senate. But, you know, policing is so local. There are nearly 20,000 police departments in in the country. So I think a lot of people are just saying, you know, well, it's really going to have to be up to the local communities and the the states to push forward with things like bans on chokeholds, no-knock warrants, and take some of the steps that they can take locally to try to have something happen. So, you know, I think people are still frustrated in many instances, but still pushing forward, saying that, you know, it's up to us to kind of make these reforms happen. Before we go, Professor Yanka, any closing thoughts from you? Any idea of how you would perhaps like to see public safety reimagined in the U.S.? I think Cheryl touched upon this in the beginning when she was speaking about the way in which new programs have paired police and um, police and mental health professionals, for example. I think of analogous kinds of programs with homelessness. The way I put it is think of how many times you walk by somebody who you think is in distress and you want to be able to make a phone call to help them, but something in you knows the police are not the right people to call for this circumstance. And it strikes me as a matter of political will and building from the local ground up the kinds of infrastructure where we can make that phone call and not have it just be a police officer and where we can help the homeless person, the person in mental distress, the person with drug issues. You want to make that phone call, but the police are not the right people. And even the police don't view themselves as the right people to handle every circumstance to which they're called. That's Echo Yanka. He's a law professor at Cardoza Law School in New York. Also with us, Chicago-based NPR correspondent Cheryl Corley. Thank you both. Well, that's it for today's Reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.